After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they were never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. an amazing passage with an awful lot in there. So I'm going to just try and draw certain aspects out today. Hopefully it will be helpful for us. Sometimes we read something like that and it seems so big that we could feel, how does this relate to me in my little life? My, my daily walk of faith. But obviously our, we seek to do coming together and reading God's word together. We seek to try and bring it down <clears throat> to, to a level where we can understand it better and also act on it as well. It's an amazing image isn't it of worship you know, heaven just full of worship and obviously we as the church gathered on this earth we seek to emulate something of that worship and we, one reason we come together on Sunday is we gather to worship because we need some practice of this guys because look what the future looks like okay now, as I said a bit earlier, we're looking today at the, the church value of worship. And this is where the passage 
really hopefully will help us as well. It highlights the importance of worship, not only in our individual lives, but in the, our lives of faith very much together as a church. We gather, <clears throat> one of the main reasons we gather is to worship together. <clears throat> worship is so central. I, th I think one of the reasons for that is if we really intend to do anything meaningful for God, then we need to start by looking to God. Not looking away from God, but looking to God. And that's really what we do when we worship. When we gather to worship, we're saying, you know, this is important enough. I'm going to come and I'm you know, looking to God, focusing on God, attending to God, and how God might lead us through our worship into our daily lives as well. <clears throat> Personally, I find that through worship, I'm in a better position then to think about how my relationships are with others around me and with the wider world and the things that I do as well. And I think it's often through worship we are almost like recalibrated in a way, reorientated towards our Lord. And in that worship, sometimes we can find the strength to go on, to press on. You know, sometimes we come here exhausted. And we look to the Lord, we look to who he is. And so often through that we find the grace of faith which gives us the strength to face the day that lies ahead of us. I think this morning, if you feel your battery of faith, you imagine you had a little battery of faith. If you feel your battery of faith running low, then I would just want to suggest to you that gathering for worship is so fundamental in recharging that battery. Don't try and do it on your own. Gather with other Christians and come together. Now, the word worship means quite different things to different people in this world. We seem to worship all sorts of things, don't we? But the Bible says, uh, worship the Lord alone. Worship God alone. And the Bible teaches very, very clearly, all through its length, that worshipping anyone else or anything else is considered idolatry, which is one of those sins that just beset the Israelites and it continues to beset us today by the way you know, we're not immune from idolatry in our modern lives so we need to remember those words that are in Exodus I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of a land of slavery you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself any idol in the form of anything in heaven or on earth beneath it or in the waters below you shall not bow down and worship them. True spiritual worship is perhaps one of the greatest needs we have as Christians. There's constant emphasis often in the churches about witnessing for Christ and working for Christ, but sometimes we don't pay enough attention to worshipping him. When we talk about Christian worship, we, what we're saying is that we want to bring all that we are to God in praise. It's not just about song. No doubt the songs are wonderful, the musicians are wonderful, but it's far more than just our sung dimension. It's all we are. If you think about who we are, body, how we use our bodies, mind, how we think, and our, our sorrow, our spirit, our hearts, if you like. You know, bring, we bring all these things into worship and that scripture that Fiona read for us told us we do that because he is worthy of all we can ever bring heaven is clearly a place full of worship 
God's people will be gathered to him to worship him throughout all eternity. But even here in our earthly life, with all our struggles and difficulties, he is still worthy of all the worship we can ever bring. So before we look at chapter 4, I'm actually going to get us to look quickly at chapters 2 and 3 and chapter 5. Hopefully that will become clear when I do it. Um, You can tell me later if that's the case. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation comprise seven letters to seven churches. Um, And these are the churches that were sometimes commended, but more often actually corrected by their Lord Jesus for their varied life and witness as church. So at the time this book was written, all these churches, whether they've been good or bad as it were, would have been suffering from various forms of opposition and persecution. It would have been a daily challenge to the churches to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, to keep focusing, as it were, on their Lord. Rather than being preoccupied with their fears and their concerns and their worries that someone was going to come and threaten their livelihoods or their life together or what it might be. And even today, in this much more comfortable situation we have here in Milford, I don't think anybody's been stopping us coming in the door or anything like that, hopefully we can also identify to times in our own lives where trial and tribulation has come to us, as it comes to all of us, and we find ourselves focusing on more on those passing difficulties, I'm not minimising them, but passing difficulties, than keeping our eyes focused on the Lord. Keeping our eyes focused on him is important, for fruitful life of faith. And the primary way we are instructed to do that in the Bible is through prayer and worship. So I don't think it's accidental that chapters two and three come, those letters to the seven churches come immediately before this wonderful vision that John records of heaven. And I'll explain why in a minute. Just then going on, just thinking a little bit about chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4, which is our reading, focuses on the glory of God as creator, while chapter 5 focuses on the glory of God as our redeemer. You can read this later, maybe, if you pick up your Bibles. They both close with hymns of praise. The first, I say chapter 4 closes with a hymn of praise to God as creator, which says, You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory, honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and had their being. But you'll find when you read chapter 5, you've got another song of praise to God as Redeemer with these words. In verse 9, they they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. If we look at chapters 4 and 5 together, the two chapters come together, calling on believers to come, to gather, to worship, to look up and see, to worship God, both as creator and as redeemer. Now, although at times the images in John's vision are not always very easily accessible to us, the fact remains that those two chapters together are seeking to give us such a wonderful vision of God that we find ourselves almost compelled, drawn up in worship of him. 
It's almost as though John is saying to those troubled churches, he's as written about in chapters 2 and 3, he's saying to them, okay, yeah, life's not great, but stop looking down, look up, look up to God in heaven, your creator and your redeemer, and worship him. So do, if you do get a chance later on, do look at you know, those, those chapters together. Hopefully you might draw for yourself more out of that. But now coming back to the reading and chapter 4. Verse 1 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John, even before he starts describing the glory of heaven, in those opening words, he makes an amazing announcement when you think about it, that the door of heaven is open. Heaven for the Jews would have been traditionally understood as something where they don't go. It is shut up, it's closed to humanity. And yet now it is seen here through the work of Christ to have an open door. Christian worship, our worship, always needs to begin with remembering of what God has done for us in Christ. When we come to worship, we do not come to a closed door. Even if that is what you might feel you deserve, you still do not come to a closed door. No, we come to a door that is open, flung open, in fact, for us by Jesus. Not just open a little crack, but one that we can walk through, not just look through. If you think of the natural world for a minute, consider all its beauty and how easily when you look around you, it can stop you in your tracks and draw you into wonder and worship. And the same surely is true for us as Christians as we glimpse something of our Redeemer God for us in Christ, that we too might just be stopped in our tracks and drawn into worship. So it's a wonderful opening statement that John makes, even before he comes on into the detail of the vision. Now, I look at this passage with some trepidation. I'm not pretending to be an expert in much of the Jewish imagery, which is largely Old Testament imagery, that you will find in these verses. But I do want us to look at it a little bit closer, because even being you know, a little superficial, I think within it there are things that we can take away, little things that we can glimpse something more of the glory of God, hopefully that invites us to worship him. A key word in the whole chapter is the word throne. It's used 14 times in the chapter. In fact, it's a really key word in the whole book of Revelation where you'll find it about 50 times. And the point of the view of the throne is God is pictured as sovereign. Not just some other spirit, not just something else. God is pictured as sovereign, a king as it were, sitting on a throne in absolute authority ruling over his world, not someone else's world, his world. He's the creator. It's an image that's saying no matter what happens on earth, God, the sovereign God, remains in complete control of all that he has made, both seen and unseen. What an encouragement that would have been for the suffering saints of John's day who lived lives where they were persecuted on a regular basis. What an encouragement it has been for the church ever since. 
what an encouragement it should be for us as we do face our difficulties, temporary though they are, that we might also come to worship one who is rightly called Sovereign Lord, Almighty God. So having said that, let me just draw on a couple of the, the, uh, the things I want to pick out on. So once I was in the spirit, John says, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and uh, Carnelian, in my translation, a rainbow resembling an emerald circled the throne. Now let's not forget that there's no way for mere human words to really describe God. We can't capture God with our words. We can describe maybe some little thing, aspect of God, but we, our words are really limiting. And John would have found them very limited as he looked at this glorious image. He could only share something that had it been a word, and that's very, very small. Um, the Apostle Paul actually struggled in a similar way. In 1 Timothy, we read, he writes these words. He says, he says, God, the blessed and the only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. For those gems, Jasper and Carnelian, were gems found on the high priest breastplate back in Exodus. You were reading Exodus 28, you would find that those gems are there. The breastplate in the old, in, that in the Old and New Testament writers understood as a symbolic of the righteousness of God, the justice of God. Isaiah said he puts on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance and wraps himself in zeal as in a cloak. The breastplate symbolizes the inherent righteousness and justice of God. And around the throne, we, he sees a rainbow reminding us of God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. And how God has sought throughout history to enter into a covenant relationship with humankind. It is only because of God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ that we can even dare to approach God's throne in worship. John goes on, he says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads, the white robes and the golden crowns. They speak of victory, a victory that was theirs and will also be ours in Christ. It speaks of those who have overcome, who have conquered, and have followed Christ in this world. And then again, he continues, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And again, the name of God used by those creatures, the Lord God Almighty, again emphasises the absolute sovereign power of God. And here we see again that central image of the throne, 
and yet the worship that is due to the one who sits upon it by all of creation, by all of heaven. And in response to this vision he has, John witnesses then the acts of worship, which are the natural response to the glory of God. Coming in Christ to God, we can then fall into worship because we know he has forgiven us. Coming to, to, to God without Christ means we will be fearful of that God and his judgment. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honour and thanks to him who sat on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fell down before him and worshipped, worshipped him who lives forever and ever. They laid their crowns before the throne and they said, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and had their being. So even for those heavenly beings, as it were, in that vision, seeing who God is results in all of heaven bowing down before him in worship and praise. And again, that's one of the things you will actually find in the book of Revelation. There's obviously an awful lot in the book of Revelation. One of the things you will actually find is a lot of spontaneous worship songs. Songs that just seem to burst out of something that's shown. And immediately there's a response. And response isn't an intellectual, oh, that's rather clever and thoughtful and mind-provoking. It's just a response, a response of worship. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. So what does this all mean? The heart of a Christian gospel is the under, our understanding that God in Christ has opened up a way through the cross that means even people like you and I can now approach him without mortal fear, but in reverence, with holy awe, and spontaneous heartfelt worship. Jesus taught his disciples that he was the way, the truth, and the life. A way open for all those who trust in him and would walk upon his way, following him. A way that ultimately leads us into the courts of God Almighty himself. That's an awesome thought, even of itself. Brother Lawrence said these words about worship, which I think are quite helpful. He says, to worship God is to admit that we are entirely contrary to him. Do you feel that? I do. At times I do feel entirely contrary to him. But Brother Lawrence goes on to say, but that he is willing to make us like himself. Both sides. Jesus made it possible for us to worship God in the splendour of his holiness. No longer exiles, no longer outsiders, no longer laden down by our sin, but children of the Most High, welcomed, ushered into those heavenly courts to join the countless throngs, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands, all races, all peoples, all nations, who will gather to worship him there. The Apostle Paul says that we can barely grasp the riches of God's grace, the extent of his wonderful love, the wealth of the inheritance we have received in Christ. But through the little that we do see, there really is sufficient there already now to draw our earthly hearts, our clay hearts, 
into worship and spontaneous song. Paul prayed for the Ephesians, and he said in these words, he said, I keep on asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that gl- the glorious Father, that he might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you might know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Whenever, wherever we consider the amazing saving work of God in Christ, then we stand, I believe, on the threshold of worship. Worship that has the power to transcend our present troubles, to lift up our eyes, our hearts, and our voices in heartfelt praise. We all need this kind of worship, for he is worthy, worthy, worthy. Amen.